1 John 1. I invite you to use your imagination with me. Think a little bit here for a moment about the law of gravity, right? Uh, we recognize the influence that gravity has upon us day to day, and uh, if we were to deny its reality, we run into all kinds of problems. Um, to say, you know what, I understand the balcony's up there, the floor's down here, but there's a much quicker way than taking the stairs, right? Maybe the youngest in our midst could make it, I don't know, um, but for most of us, we'd walk away with hurt knees, backs, all kinds of injuries trying to make that transition because to ignore the influence of gravity, to ignore the law of gravity, stands the chance to be incredibly painful. On the other hand, it's interesting to think about the world we live in today that I have to imagine is very different um, than that that people have lived in centuries and millennia ago, um, because there are some ways, I realize you can't stretch what I'm saying too far, uh, but there are some ways in which we're not bound by the law of gravity as people once were. Um, the idea that you can get into a piece of metal and leave the ground for travel is really amazing when you think about it. And yet, even in the past year, we've had story after story come out where it's not just a matter of getting into an airplane, but let's get into uh, rockets and let's leave Earth all together. And, you know, we realize that in the last hundred years, last hundred years, that's been done numerous times over and over and over again, where people have left the Earth's atmosphere to visit the moon, or we've sent uh, other pieces of equipment up there to uh, do all kinds of different things. We talked about even a telescope recently that does some of that, where the way that people were once bound by gravity isn't uh, practiced quite so much anymore. I mean, we still are, uh, but not all the time. You know, the Bible talks about, in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul talks about sin as a law. This governing, ruling principle. And in Romans 7, Paul the Apostle is writing. He knows that in Christ, we are to reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin. Romans chapter 6. Consider yourself no longer bound by sin. But he comes to chapter 7, and he says, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the bad that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And he says, near the end of Romans 7, I see another law warring in my members. And at the end of that verse, he calls it the law of sin. You know, when we think about the law of gravity, again, to deny its existence can be incredibly painful. To be bound by it is incredibly limiting. The text that we're going to look at that we read earlier here in 1 John chapter 1 addresses this idea of the law of sin operating within us. And as believers, it's incredibly important that we understand what John is saying here. In fact, if we were to summarize this morning's message in one sentence, we could say it this way, fellowship requires the right approach to sin. Fellowship requires the right approach to sin. We cannot deny its existence. We cannot redefine it away. 
We cannot minimize it. But at the same time, we do not have to be crippled and bound by it anymore. Again, I think in the culture we live in, in our humanity, while we might not say it, the implications of what we do often mean we either deny or redefine the existence of sin, or we've recognized it and we see it as this is just governing, it's going to rule, so why try? And the end of 1 John chapter 1 paints a very different picture for us. To understand that because we have fellowship with God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, and as we seek to have fellowship one with another, we have to view and handle sin the right way. If you remember with me as we looked last week, we started into these conditional statements. Back in verse 3, John has said, we're writing to you so that we can have fellowship with one another, but truly, really, our fellowship is with God the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing this to you, verse 4, so that you would have this complete joy, this full joy that's intended because you have fellowship with God. And so he starts to say, how do you evaluate that fellowship? How do you maintain that close relationship? And there are these series of conditional statements. If this, then this. If this, then this. And they go through 1 John as we saw last week, 1 John 1, but they do carry further. We'll see some of them show up uh, as we work our way through the book in additional chapters just as much as well. But last week, the emphasis was, if you claim to have fellowship with God, your walk needs to match your words. Your walk needs to match your words. God in his very being is light. And so if you're saying, I have fellowship with the one who is light, you had better conduct life walking in the light. If we don't walk in the light, if we instead, as our habit, our manner of being is, just walk in darkness, do what's wrong, violate God's word, we are not in fellowship with God. We are not his. But he says, if on the other hand, we are as a habit of life walking in the light, what's the implication of that? I think it's worth noting again, because I think it is different than what we would expect. And many of you heard this last week, perhaps you weren't able to be with us. But he says, if you are walking in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We would expect, I think it to say, we even in our American culture today in the private kind of Christianity, the way we approach things sometimes, would like it to say, we have fellowship with God. And that is true. You do have fellowship with God if you're walking in the light. But what he specifically says here is one of the ways we have right relationship to each other is we walk in the light and then we have fellowship with each other. Now, all that said, do we say, well, yeah, I'm walking in the light, I'm good, yep, sin's not an issue. And he very clearly, in verses 8 through 10, begins to point out that as you have fellowship with God, yes, you must be walking in the light, but you'd better not deny the reality of sin. You'd better deal with sin, because fellowship requires the right approach to sin. Fellowship with God requires the right approach to sin. As we look at verses 8 through 10 with me, you can glance at them, but you'll notice that all three have assertions made. And 
Verses 8 and 10, particularly, we have negative assertions, we might call them. And sandwiched in between those two negative assertions, we have a very positive action that's given. We're going to start by looking at the negative assertions in verse 8 and then in verse 10, and then at the end of our time together, we're going to look at this positive action that we're given in verse 9, and it'll be a couple weeks before we get there, but it sets us up obviously very well to deal with the truth that he gives into chapter 2. The first negative assertion that we look at as we come to verse 8 is this, denial of sin is self-deceptive and dangerous. Denial of sin is self-deceptive and dangerous. Here he's addressing the current possibility to sin. The current possibility to sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. As we follow the flow of argument where we were last week, what he's fighting against, and I doubt many of us would say it, but the idea that Well, yeah, I know God. I've been saved by Jesus Christ. I'm walking in the light. I don't sin. I'm good. Be careful with that line of thinking. Say, if we say, I, I don't have any sin going on, we deceive ourselves. Now, again, Romans 6 clearly teaches, I mentioned ago, that we can be dead indeed unto sin. We are, actually, not can be. If we know Christ, we are dead indeed unto sin. That's the situation, that's the position we are in. Sin does not have to reign in our mortal bodies, that we would obey it in the lust thereof. We can have victory over sin. But the flesh is still with us. Temptation is still present. And so there's this ongoing battle to yield to grace rather than to sin. That's Paul's point in Romans 7 is, He is an apostle inspired by the Spirit of God, says, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the bad that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And he points to the fact that Christ is the one who delivers, that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Again, John here in 1 John 1 is driving at personal fellowship, not just doctrinal concept. He wants us to understand we need to acknowledge that there is sin, that there is still temptation, that we will fail, that we will miss the mark. I heard in one of our Sunday school classes this morning, they got a good visual picture of missing the mark using Nerf guns. I won't pull that up this morning. They go, hey, you know what? Here's the target. We'll see who hits it. But God says, here's the standard for our words. You know what? If we're honest, our words aren't always building up. They're not always demonstrating grace, are they? We missed the mark. So to say, oh yeah, I walked in the light, I'm all good, I didn't have to confess anything this week, is not true. To say, here's the standard of your thoughts and kindness because of God's kindness to you in Jesus Christ. Here's the positive characteristics of self-sacrificial love that we've been called to as a disciple of Jesus Christ. To to love as he did, John 13, 34, and 35 goes, I don't measure up. So we need to be careful of this claim that says, well, if I say that I have no sin, watch out for that line of thinking. Because here's the consequences. If we do that, we deceive ourselves. There's two consequences given to us in light of this claim. One, we're lying to ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. That word translated deceive means to lead astray. It's often used in context of shepherding. So, for example, in Matthew 18, when you have a sheep that wanders away from the fold, one of the 99 is gone. 
That's the word that's used. It's, it's been deceived or it's been led astray. It's the same word that's used in 1 Peter 2. It speaks of us. We were sheep going astray, but now we're returned to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. It's like because you've thought, I'm good. I'm fine. You've actually led yourself down a path that has brought you to the place where you are deceived because you have lied to yourself. You ever been in one of those conversations? Occasionally happens to me with my wife, happened yesterday, where I'm like, no, I know this is true. I'm positive this is right. It is absolutely got to be this way. And then all of a sudden it hits you, it's like, no. All right, Melinda, you were right. I was wrong. Again, right? Because we realize sometimes we have ourselves fully persuaded. I know this is true. I've got this figured out. It's absolutely right. You know, it is a good moment, albeit a hard moment, where you come around and go, no, I'm wrong. That's the danger of sin here. It's repeated over and over and over in Scripture that sin wants to deceive you so that it can destroy you. So be careful of the claim that says, no, I haven't sinned. I'm completely good. Go, God, I, I want you to open my eyes so that I don't lie to myself. I don't know if you've ever counseled someone, child or adult, who's self-deceived who's absolutely headed down a dangerous path, the wrong road, and they won't turn around and see it. It's the warning of Proverbs where over and over and over, it's like a wise man will hear and will increase in learning. A wise person listens and goes, you know what? I'm not sure I see it that way, but I'm going to hear you out. And I'm going to evaluate. I'm going to ask God to open my eyes because I want to be on guard. You could go to James chapter 1 and be reminded that Sin does lie to you. It does deceive you. It does want to destroy. And he comes to the end of that and says, now do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't get this wrong. Because denial of sin is so self-deceptive and dangerous when we lie to ourselves. Furthermore, he says, we not, the consequences, we not only lie to ourselves, we lack the truth. The truth is not in us. We could say it this way. It's not that we don't have access to the truth, but we've chosen not to accept the truth. Most, if not all, have some copy of the Bible, printed, digital, something with you this morning. You have access to the truth of God. It's right there. But to assume that access means we've accepted it, we've bought into it, we've owned and absorbed it, is not necessarily true. To understand my marriage must look this way. My parenting must look this way. My response to my parents must look this way. My words must meet this standard. I have to forgive here. And we could go example after example after example to realize, you know what? There's times where our acceptance of the truth isn't quite parallel with our access to the truth. Where we're not, it's not there, it's not in us. And he's saying, be careful, because if, if you think, I'm good, I haven't sinned, be very on guard, because sin does deceive. It lies to you, you lie to yourself. The truth 
is not in us. That's the first negative assertion. The denial of sin is deceptive and dangerous. We're talking about the current possibility to sin. But then he talks and says in verse 10, denial of sin is spiritually destructive and damning. Denial of sin is spiritually destructive and damning. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The claim here is even more severe than the first one. It's not so much about the current possibility to sin. It's about the reality or depravity of sin. Let's go, I haven't sinned. No, never. You see it represented there at the beginning of verse 10. It's in the perfect tense. Remember, perfect tense is that action in the past and it continues with ramifications in the present. He's saying, looking back into the present, I have never sinned. You hear those words, and I would guess for many, perhaps not all, that they seem far-fetched doctrinally. Like, Why would anybody say that? But I want you to consider it practically for a moment in our culture. Because I would contend we live in a culture that is seeking to erase sin. Not just an American culture, but even an American Christian culture. What do you mean by seeking to erase sin? Well, we can erase the ability to indict anything as wrong. Right? If we were to just take a pen and paper out and go, you know what, today I'd like you to write down 20 things that no one should ever do. What would you put on that list? Would you be willing to share that list with someone and go, hey, listen, you should never do this. Because the Bible gives us plenty of prohibitive commands that are very clear. They're not debatable. They're not up for discussion. And yet sometimes, like, I don't know if I can tell somebody that that's wrong. It's a push against the fact that we're all sinners. We all fall short. We all miss the mark. Not only is there this inability to indict something as wrong, there's a redefining of what is right and wrong go, well, can you really say that that's sin? Or not just the redefining, there's the tolerating of any kind of morality. Well, your morality is different than my morality, and I come from a different basis for morality, and we're both right, even though that's intellectually dishonest and impossible. Because we're just going to tolerate any kind of system, whether it's yours or mine, we're just going to have to learn to get along And probably in the midst of that, the biggest one that maybe comes home to roost with most of us is more just assuming the innate goodness of people. Oh, they're such a good person. They're such a good in what way? Because biblically, God's indictment of me and God's indictment of you and God's indictment of us all is there is none that doeth good. No, not one. None of us. None. We cannot deny the depravity of all of mankind or the reality of sin. When we do, we are headed down a dangerous road because it is hard to convince someone who is never lost that they need to be saved. They need to be rescued. Rescued from what? I'm a good person. You're a good person. We're all good people. We just view things differently. Again, the claim here is, no, never sinned, not at all. You say that doesn't happen. Stood out to me over the last decade or so coming to summer Bible adventure, vacation Bible school, and 
talking to kids, that there are kids who will show up and be like, I have never done anything wrong. Very real. I could give you names and it wouldn't be appropriate. But it's like, no, it's never. Boy, it's a different world. You know, when we're there, we're in a very dangerous spot. We're saying the denial of sin is spiritually destructive and it condemns us. Because as we have seen the claim, look at the consequences of this claim. First, this assertion blasphemously assumes God is a liar. This assertion blasphemously assumes that God is a liar. We're actually here making an accusation about God. Yes, God has said that. Yes, his word says that. Yes, he sent his son for that. I don't know if I believe that because I've never sinned. We're saying God is not true. Whereas earlier in the text, the truth we were given is God is light. This claim reverses that completely and says, no, actually God is a liar. A very serious charge. The word that's used here in 1 John chapter 1 is the word that Jesus uses to say, this is what the devil is the father of. And we know that there is no darkness in God at all. This is a denial of the simple truth of Romans 3, where God told us, all have sinned. All have come short of his glory. There is none, chapter 3, verse 10, that meets God's standard. There's none righteous, no, not one. So the first consequence of this is that this assertion blasphemously assumes that God is a liar. But secondly, this assertion spiritually demonstrates that someone is lost. It spiritually demonstrates someone's loss. His word is not in us. What word is that? It's the word that's been declared through chapter 1. It's the word of life. The word that brings life has never been accepted. The, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not there. Earlier in, chapter, in verse 8... He said, we're not doing the truth. We don't have the truth. In other words, we're, we're not following what the word actually says. Here it's gone a step further, and he's like, his word is not in you. You haven't been converted. That's why, again, this denial of sin is so consequential, so condemning. But thankfully, in the midst of these two negative assertions, there's a positive action given. Because, follow the flow of thought, if we're going to have fellowship with God and we're going to have fellowship with one another, we must walk in the light. But as I walk in the light, I can't be like, well, yeah, I'm good, you're good, we're all good, we don't, you don't do anything wrong, do you? I mean, you were the perfect spouse, the perfect employee, whatever your hand found to do, you did it heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men. I mean, your words were awesome this week. Yeah, you didn't sin, did you? No, actually, you did. You did. And by the way, before we dive into verse 9, maybe let, let me help us get this, because we come out of verses 8 and through 10, and I can kind of sometimes think people are just going, well, yeah, I don't know that I connect with either of those thoughts. Let me give you a real practical means of evaluating whether you connect with verses 8 and 10 or verse 9. What was the last sin you confessed? not going to make you raise your hand. You're not going to share. What was the last sin you confessed? 
When was it? Like in the last day? Last three days? Last week? I have sinned within the last week. I've sinned within the last day. You're like, I'm not sure. You know, if we're not confessing our sins, where we're going to go in verse 9, which is wonderful truth that I would guess many have memorized, but if we haven't confessed our sins, we're living practically like verses 8 through 10 apply to us. Because if I haven't gone, God, you said my words are to be this, my words weren't, God, would you forgive me? Then I'm living like I have no sin. I'm living like verse 8, or potentially living like verse 10. That's an incredibly dangerous place to be. Confession ought to be a regular part of every one of our prayers. Every last one of us. I mean, Apostle Paul, right? I see this law warring in my members. The good that I want to do, I don't. The bad that I don't want to do, I do. So we ought to be able to go, yeah, I I had to confess sin. Yep, as a parent, I got angry. I had to confess that. As an employee, I didn't put my best effort in. I was dishonest, whatever it may be. But if we're not confessing sin, we're living like verses 8 and 10. Denial of sin is self-deceptive and dangerous. Denial of sin is spiritually destructive and damning. But third, we come to this positive action. Confession of sin leads to cleansing from sin. Fellowship requires the right approach to sin. Verse 9, we're given that approach. Confession of sin leads to cleansing from sin. Our responsibility here in verse 9, notice it's not a claim, it's an, it's an action. It's our responsibility. Our responsibility is repentant confession. If we confess our sins, not simply, well, if we're saved, we don't have to confess because God just has a good disposition towards us and he show us mercy, right? If, if, if earlier I asked the question, when was the last time you confessed sin and you don't remember The truth of verse 9 is not yet being applied to your life. Proverbs 28 verse 13 might be that he that covers his sins does not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Or the truth of Psalm 66 verse 18 might apply, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Or the truth of Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Right? Sin does impact our fellowship. I said this either last week or the week before, but I'll remind you. Sin never breaks your relationship to God. Praise God for that. Sin does not break your relationship with God but it does impact your fellowship with God. It's flawed because people are flawed, but I use the example of parenting. I want my kids to understand, I will always be your parent. I will always be your dad. And I'd like to say, in spite of my weakness in humanity, I will always love you. And I'll strive for that by grace. 
But you know what? When disobedience happens, that relationship is strained. The fellowship is not as close. You lied. How do I trust if, if we're not honest? And we, we have to work through that, right? Or if I get angry with them, they're like, ooh, I don't feel close. That fellowship is impacted. You know, when we sin, it never breaks our relationship with God. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Jesus, Christ Jesus. Nothing ever separates us from his love. But it does impact our fellowship because, again, whether it's Psalm 66, 18, or Proverbs 28, verse 13, or Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, or for the husbands in the room, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, about your relationship with your wife and your prayers, fellowship does get hindered. It does. So what do we do? We confess. We confess. As many of you would know, this word confess means to speak together. The idea of saying the same thing as God would say. To agree with God is the way we often describe it. When I, when I confess, I'm saying, God, I'm going to say the same thing as you say about this action. Which an easy way to do that is to use Scripture. To go, God, my words were not ministering grace. God, that was not honest. That was false. God, that wasn't kind. To actually tie the words of Scripture to what we're saying. God, I agree with you. I'm saying the same thing as you would. That's our responsibility, to confess it. The nature of the tense here, by the way, is present tense, which I've noted, and I don't want to be too technical here this morning, but the tenses through 1 John 1 matter. There are times where he's like, point in time. And point in time would be appropriate because there are times where point in time, right, point in time, I sin, boom. So point in time, I'm going to confess. True. But here, he uses a word that's very true to life for us. It's theologically accurate. If we are confessing, God, I'm here again. I'm frustrated with myself that I'm here again. God, I need your grace. God, I'm asking for your help and I'm asking for your forgiveness because I failed. Our responsibility is this ongoing, repentant agreement with God where we say, God, that was wrong. I want to turn from that. I don't want to go in darkness. I want to walk in the light. Which means for many of us, there's going to need to be a regular, throughout the day kind of conversation with God. In light of our responsibility being this repentant confession, notice God's response. God's response is righteous, reliable cleansing. Our, our responsibility is this repentant confession, but God's response is righteous, reliable cleansing. First, we notice God's response is consistent with his character. God's response is consistent with his character. He is faithful and just. That's going to be shown to forgive us our sins. But God in his very being, whether we go to Hebrews chapter 13 or Romans chapter 5, we see very clearly that God is both faithful and just in who he is. And thankfully, that doesn't change when it comes to dealing with your sin and mine. His response is consistent with his character. I think it's important we zero in on the two words that are used there. When we say he is faithful, we like the word, we use the word, he's reliable. Right? We like things that are reliable. 
over and over and over again. You had a car that's not reliable? You have a battery that's not reliable in your car? Like, this time of year, it's horrible. You want to get in, turn the key, and know that it will go. Oh, I was in a hurry. It's like, that's the morning it will happen, right? You're late, got to get to work, got to get to church, put the key in, and it doesn't go. When it comes to you and I confessing, God is always reliable. Always. Always. We don't even operate that way. You ever been so hurt that someone comes to try to restore the relationship and you're just not there yet? I know I need to be. I know I got to get there. You know what? When it comes to God, he's not like, you again? You got to be kidding me. How many times have we had this conversation? You know better. No, that's not God. He's faithful. He's 100% reliable in his response of forgiveness, and yet he's not just faithful. You've heard this from me before, but I'm going to belabor it again. He is also just. Because we like the reliable side, but what this is saying is he's not just reliable, he's right. He's right. For sake of illustration, hopefully not to create too big of a distraction. Let's say you stole something. I'm like, hey, you know what? It's okay. I forgive you. I'll let you off. Sorry. You didn't steal from me, but I'm going to let you off. It's okay. Is that fair? Is it right? Like, obviously not. And in our humanity, we're actually very limited to grant righteous forgiveness. Because we're not paying the debt for the wrong. Like, how do you pay the debt for the problem that your unkind words created? Do you start keeping tabs? Like, well, I guess I'll have to do three kind deeds and hope that that equates for the uh, unkindness of what I did. You can't. But when it comes to God being just, he's saying all that your sin deserves has been paid by my son. All of God's wrath that would condemn you and I to hell for eternity was poured on Jesus Christ who did nothing wrong. That's why in those simple words, there's such profound, beautiful truth when he says, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Go, Christ took my punishment for my sins so that now, after I've accepted Christ, if I agree with God about my sin to turn from it, God is not only reliable, he can rightly, justly forgive me of it and go, I'm going to let you off. You, You don't actually deserve hell. 
because my sin paid my son paid for your sin wonderfully god's response is consistent with his character always he is both reliable and right to forgive because god's response is not just consistent with his character secondly god's response is a release from our wrongs God's response is a release from our wrongs. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The core idea of this word forgive is to release or to send away. A lot of historical usage, biblical and otherwise, is used in the context of releasing of a debt. Like what we read in the parable in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus gives us extensive teaching on forgiveness. To go, here is the debt that is owed. And it is written off, completely released, to be brought up no more. Right? Saying God, in his disposition towards us, is righteous and reliable to release us from our wrongs. We're pardoned. The guilt of our sin is released. We're free. You know, when that happens, it doesn't keep getting brought up over and over and over again. To go, hey, you remember? It's like, no, it was dealt with. It's gone. It's released. You're free. John, I believe, will come back to this thought later on in 1 John chapter 4 to remind us that in our flesh, there are times where the devil wants to come and go, yeah, you remember you did that? When God forgives, he doesn't keep bringing it up. But there is temptation. There is discouragement that happens where it's like, remember how you failed? Yeah, you're going to do it again. Yeah, you probably already did. Why would God care about you? And he's going to say, hey, if your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart. Because you can get real hung up and go, oh, and it's so discouraging and defeating, much like Paul's uh, argument in Romans chapter 7. I, I want to do what's right, but I'm not. I don't want to do what's wrong, but that's what I'm doing. But Christ has delivered. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. God's response is to release in a manner that it is not brought up again. I think it almost has to be said. I realize it's not directly in 1 John 1. It's in Ephesians 4, verse 32. And it's in Matthew 18. For you and me, when we're wronged, God does expect the same of us. To go, forgive even as God for Christ's sake, have forgiven you. To say, I'm going to release you. I'm going to treat you as though this didn't happen because that's what God did for me. God's response is consistent with his character. God's response is a release from our wrongs. And third and finally, God's response is a restoration of righteousness. A restoration of righteousness and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make completely clean. Stands out in my mind because of some of the things that have happened in our house recently with furniture and clothes, my clothes, where um, it's not a good idea to do car work, touch a car in your dress clothes because grease is bad for dress clothes, right? But some of the ladies in our midst are like, Wonder workers, my wife being one, it's like, you know what, if we add this and this and this, then that might come out. Um, and in my, life, my, my thinking, I'm like, it's gone, it's hopeless, it's there. 
you know, that stain gets lighter and lighter and lighter, sometimes completely gone. You realize what the text is telling us here is when it comes to us having not met God's standard, having failed, having lived unrighteously, he says, God not only releases you, the stain's gone. Cleansed, completely not there. He removes the wrong. He restores the right. It's as though it never happened. This is a choice on his part. It is clearly a decision followed by his action. Right? Because God is omniscient. God does know all. All. And yet he says, because of the work of my son, it's cleansed. I'm going to treat it as though it's never happened. Probably my favorite text in regards to this is Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. We've discussed it often, just studied Colossians. But where it says, he's blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. He took him out of the way, nailing it to his cross, saying, here's your criminal record of all the laws that you broke. And he wiped it clean. He said, it's done. So now, when we sin, if we will but confess our sin, he is absolutely right. He is absolutely reliable to release you from that wrong and to restore your righteousness as though it never happened. So that you have fellowship. And what happens when you have fellowship? You have joy. And how do you continue to maintain that joy? You walk in the light because he is in the light. But what happens when you fail and you say, you're like, oh, I don't sin. Don't do that. No, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and there's fellowship. And you know what happens when you have fellowship? You have joy. And you know what happens as you have fellowship and joy? You walk in the light. ask you this morning, is there a sin that you go, you know what, I need to deal with that. Spirit of God, maybe through a comment that was made, maybe not through a comment that was made, just indicted your heart and went, you haven't dealt with that. I'm going to give you time here in just a minute to deal with that. I know we don't do this every service, but I think it's very important. We're talking about having fellowship with God and even fellowship with one another, that if you go, there's that sin right there. On the other hand, I'll come back for all of us and ask the question that I asked a moment ago. When was the last time you confessed sin? If by some chance you don't remember, there's probably sin that does need to be addressed. There's probably a need for the Spirit of God to begin to work on us once again so that our heart is pricked when we're angry or unkind or dishonest or lazy we're not as loving as we should be when we miss the mark, when we fall short. Before we conclude with the song, I want to give you just a couple minutes to talk to the Lord in prayer, deal with anything you need to deal with, and we'll come back and we'll sing together. Father, once again, we are thankful for the mercy you have shown us through your Son, Jesus Christ. 
giving us the opportunity to be forgiven of our sin, declared to be right before you, saved by you from sin's eternal consequences in hell. Lord, I'd ask that if there's any here today who still yet need to be saved, that you would, by your spirit, by your word, work in their hearts where they would respond by believing on Christ and being saved. Lord, we are humbled and yet also rejoiced that through Christ you've given us the opportunity to have fellowship with you. And because of that fellowship, to even enjoy fellowship with one another. But Lord, we do recognize that sin is still present. We don't have to be bound by it. We don't have to give in to it. But we do know that it's still present. And Lord, I pray that in light of that reality, you would, by your spirit and through your word, keep us from being self-deceived. That by your grace, you would enable us to walk in the light, to live rightly. But Lord, when we do sin, we rejoice in your disposition as being one who is completely right and absolutely reliable to forgive us and release us of those wrongs if we'll but agree with you and confess turning from that sin. Lord, I don't know where each one is here this morning, but I ask that you would enable us to find the freedom of forgiveness by confessing sins. Lord, I pray that we would maintain fellowship with you and even with one another by keeping short accounts with you and, and dealing with sin as your spirit convicts. And Lord, along those lines, I, I pray for myself and each believer that we'd be sensitive to the promptings of your spirit according to your word to deal with those wrongs when they happen. Father, we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.